So, we are going verse by verse, of course, through the epistle to the Hebrews, and as we said pretty much every week since we started, that we don't know who wrote this little letter, but we do know uh, to whom it was written. It was written to Hebrew Christians who, because of the persecution they were experiencing from non-Christian Hebrews, they began to wonder if maybe they made a mistake. They were tempted to kind of go back from their faith and go back to first century Judaism. And so the author is wanting to write an exhortive letter. He's wanting to challenge them and encourage them and help them to actually say, no, press on with Jesus. And he's doing this by reminding them over and over again that Jesus is better than Old Testament law. Jesus is better than this first century Judaism attempted to go back to. And so we pick it up in verse in chapter 5, and what's going on here is now the author is going to talk basically about how Jesus is that great high priest. In fact, we mentioned last week, starting in verse 14 of chapter 4, all the way through verse 18 of chapter 10, the author is making that point, Jesus is a better high priest. Now, it's a lot of chapters that have the same title, as we said last week, so we're kind of both kind of creative titles that have to do with the sort of subsections that are here. And then this subsection, in chapter 5, he's dealing with the fact that Jesus is a better high priest than Aaron. And we're going to talk about who Aaron is. In fact, when, I re- when we read this, I don't know about you, but if you read this and you're not super familiar with the Old Testament, again, you kind of think, okay, high priest, I don't have a high priest, what's that about? How does that work? But if you've been a part of a high church tradition, or if maybe there's someone here today who actually has a Jewish background and you're with an Orthodox or a Neo-Orthodox congregation, or if you grew up Catholic, or maybe even in a high Anglican church or Lutheran, if you've, if you've been in a high church setting, you may understand the sort of sense of this guy's up there and I need to go through him to get to God. And, and so maybe becoming a Christian, if, you're, if you've come out of that and have become a believer since then, maybe you've looked at that and thought, oh, that's weird, I don't want to go back to that. Good. But maybe you, you uh, also look at that and you go, okay, well, how does that compare to what the Jews had in their high priest? Or maybe if you don't have that kind of tradition, this whole idea of a high priest to you seems weird. I know it does for me. I didn't grow up in the church. Having not grown up in the church at all, not just not growing up in high church, I didn't grow up in church at all. So when I go into a church for the first time when I'm 18 years old, and it's kind of a church like ours, kind of happy clappy and a big band and all that kind of fun stuff. So anyway, when I came to a church like that, I thought, okay, this is not what I thought church would be. I was expecting someone to sort of talk in a strange tone, you know, like, how's everybody doing, or something like that. <laughs> and I was expecting them to have the incense burners, you know, kind of waving around, because I've seen movies where that happened. I just wasn't sure. I thought some of you wearing, like, really kind of ornate clothing. So, so for me, that stuff was, not to be disrespectful, but it was weird, because I'd never experienced it before. I, d- I didn't know what it was. So when I came in a church that was kind of contemporary, I thought, oh, okay, it, maybe it's not like that. The point being that when we talk about this idea of the high priest, for us, it requires a lot of explanation because we don't have a high priest, or at least not the way the Jews did. But to a Jewish mind, when when the author begins to talk about the high priest and comparing Jesus to the high priest, what happens is they know exactly what he means. So when he kind of just refers to certain things, we have to take more time to explain those things because we don't always know 
what a high priest was, or the point he's trying to make. So let's get into it. Verse 1, the author starts off by saying, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining, notice, to God. Now, there's a big difference between a priest and a prophet, and you have to understand this. A prophet, we talked about prophets a few weeks back in the beginning of Hebrews, a prophet would be somebody who speaks to men for God. So a prophet is, in a sense, facing men for God and saying, here's what God says. A priest is facing God, in a sense, responds to God for men. Do you see the difference? He's facing God, and it's like, okay, God, you sent your prophet, you've spoken. Now, I am responding on behalf of the people. He's a representative. He's kind of like an MP, but spiritually. He represents what the people are, or what the people desire, or what the pe- how the people should respond. That's what the high priest did. And it's important to recognize that right off the bat, when the author talks about this, he's going to talk about the fact that this was set up by God. It was God who did this. But he also makes it clear that this high priest had to be chosen from among men. That doesn't just mean males, though that was definitely the case. It was males. But it's the idea that he has to be a human. He's got to be one like the ones he's representing. He can't represent them if he's not like them. You following me? And this is a really important aspect, a really important issue. Because one, for one thing, he was going to mediate for sinful men. That's what he's going to do. He was going to be the go-between between sinful men and a perfect God. This is why God established it. So, listen to this, Exodus chapter 28. I'm going to read from the NIV. Nobody stone me, please. Here's what it says. Let Aaron, your brother, this is God speaking to Moses. He says, let Aaron, your brother, be brought to you among the, uh, from among the Israelites with his sons Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, so that they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron and give him dignity and honor. Tell all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are able to make garments for Aaron for his consecration so that he may serve me as priest. These are the garments that you make. Notice, a breast piece an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are, to made, they are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons that they may serve me as priests. Now, I highlighted the whole issue of breast piece or breastplate for a reason. We'll get back to that in a second. But the point is this, okay? He's going to have to mediate. He's going to minister to to God for the people. If you remember the Old Testament story in the book of Exodus, earlier in the book of Exodus, God leads the Israelites out of Exodus. He's redeemed them out of slavery. And as He leads them across the desert, He's going to give them, He's going to make a covenant with them, a contract based in love. And that, in that covenant, He's going to reveal Himself to them through the Ten Commandments. And if you remember, uh, Moses goes up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, and it's such a scary scenario. The holiness of God is so palpable, it's so obvious there, it's so clear there, that the children of Israel are saying, please do not let us go near him or that mountain, lest we die. And so Moses was, in a sense, in one sense, that first mediator. He was the one that was a kind of a go-between, because they were afraid of this holy God. Well, God wants there to be relationship. God wants there to be communication. So what does he do? He says, Moses, get your brother Aaron, 
to be a high priest. I'm gonna, I want to appoint him to be that mediator. He's going to mediate between me and the sinful people that are there. Now, he also says, notice in verse 2, this is the, the other reason is not just because he can mediate for sinful man, but he can sympathize with sinful man. He says in verse 2, he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. Now, what do we read last week about Jesus? Last week we read about Jesus, if you remember, we don't have a, in chapter 4, verse 15, it says we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, the author is kind of jumping off of that and saying, now remember when Aaron was appointed, why, was, why did God appoint a man? So that man could have compassion. The idea was that this, this man could know, hey, I know what it's like to be a sinner approaching a, a, a holy God, and, and so I feel for them, and so I want to represent them out of compassion and out of mercy. I'm going to seek mercy for them because I know what it's like to be weak. Now, this is interesting because later on in Exodus 28, here's what it says about this breast piece. Check this out. When God gives instructions for the breast piece, He says, fashion a breast piece for making decisions. This idea that there's going to be a pocket where they're going to pull out a stone and make a decision. The work of skilled hands, he says, make it like the ephod of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarn and a finely twisted linen. It is to be square, a span long and a span wide, and folded double. Then uh, mount four rows of precious stones on it. The first row shall be, and I'm going to not pronounce these because they're all kind of hard for me to pronounce. The second row should be some other stones and the, so on and so forth. And here's what's going to happen. There are 12 stones. There are to be 12 stones. Notice one for each of the names of the sons of Israel, each engraved like a seal with the names of one of the twelve tribes. Do you see what he's saying? Among the other garments that Aaron would have to wear as a high priest when he was ministering to God, representing the people, was this breastplate, this breastpiece, with twelve precious stones on it. And on each one of those precious stones was a different name of the 12 tribes of Israel. So listen, he was to approach God as a high priest, literally carrying the people on his heart. That's what he's meant to do. And so what the author is wanting the, Isra- the Hebrews to understand here, he's saying, listen, do you remember this is what Aaron had to do? He had to come as that, who, that one who could have compassion because he understood what it was like to be weak. He understood what it was like to be tempted. Now, I also like the fact, and this is kind of a side note, but I, I don't want to miss it. I love the fact that the author says that this high priest can have compassion on both the ignorant and those going astray. This is important, I think. The ignorant would be those who don't know better. They just don't know any better. Now, I don't know if you've ever broken a law in this country and not realized that it was actually a law to break. Anybody ever had that experience? Yeah, yeah. I've had that experience in this country, in the country I was raised in, <laughs> I'm kind of a lawbreaker by nature, you might say. But the thing is, is that it's, it's a funny thing, because I remember the first time I did something that was uh, against the rules, and I got in trouble for it, and I didn't realize it was against the rules, and I thought, what? what do you mean? And I remember hearing the phrase for the first time, the first of many times, ignorance is no excuse. Ignorance is no excuse. There's this reality that, that if you are a citizen of a country, or a part of an organization, you are responsible to know what the ethos, what the law 
what the rules are of that organization, of that country. Therefore, ignorance is no excuse. Now, really the same goes in the kingdom of God. God expects us to understand what He expects us of us. He wants us to know. We can't say, well, I didn't know. Sorry, I never read the rules. Sorry, God. It doesn't work that way. And yet, listen, He still has compassion. He wants His high priest to still have compassion on those who didn't know. I've told the story before, but it's a, it's a good story. It's a good illustration for this. Uh, when I was in high school, I was, um, they had this thing called Senior Slave Days. So your last year in high school, you're 17, 18 years old, the underclassmen bid and buy seniors uh, so they can, and they're their slave for a day. And they usually dress you up like an idiot and that kind of stuff. Well, I was the second highest bought slave that year. And I was really proud of myself. Yeah, I'm so popular, second highest bought slave. Until I realized it was the freshman cheerleaders who bought me and they put me in their cheerleading outfit. <laughs> I had to walk around all day in a 14-year-old girl's cheerleading skirt. There is a picture of it. I am not going to show you. <laughs> anyway, so this picture's in my yearbook. I never got my yearbook, but years later when I was in youth ministry, my youth group as a present bought me my senior year yearbook, and there's a picture of me in a cheerleading skirt. And one of the guys wrote across the page a verse from Leviticus that says, a man should not wear women's clothing. <laughs> and I said to him, I'm a youth pastor, it's kind of embarrassing to admit this, but I said to him, that's not in the Bible, is it? He showed me words in the Bible. I thought, another rule I've broken, I didn't even know. But it's funny, it was really a great illustration for me because I realized, you know, there's so much I still don't know about what, what God would say is right or wrong, and I break God's rules all the time. God wanted his high priest to have compassion on those who would be like that, but also those who are going astray. You know what that means? It means those who know exactly what they're doing when they break God's laws. Even on them, God wanted his high priest to have compassion. So he had to be a man for that reason. But also, listen, verse 3 says, because of this, he's required, as for the people, also for himself, to offer sacrifice, sacrifices for sins. In other words, he doesn't just have to be a man who can have compassion, a man who can sympathize and mediate, but he has to have, or he has to be willing to offer sacrifices. The Bible's really clear. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. The Bible says, look at this in the book of Leviticus. If the high priest sins, bringing guilt upon the entire community, he must give a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He must present to the Lord a young bull with no defects. He must bring the bull to the Lord at the entrance of the tabernacle, lay his hand on the bull's head, and slaughter it before the Lord. Now, this is one of these, these issues in Scripture that is offensive to a lot of modern minds. It's not just the idea of killing animals. That can be offensive to a lot of people as well. But it's the idea of why does something have to die? Why can't God just forgive? Have you ever had anybody ask you that or have you ever thought that yourself? Why can't God just forgive? How come there has to be death? Well, let me ask you a really serious question. When somebody sinned against you, what you think about? Think about a time when somebody's done something wrong against you. Can you think about a time when that's happened? Try to think about a time where someone did something that's really, really painful, where you found it incredibly difficult to forgive. Or maybe you're in a place where you can think about something that what came into your mind right now is something that you don't think you can forgive. It's just too big. See, when you 
someone sins against you and you decide to say to that person, I forgive you. You know what you're doing? You're absorbing the wound that they inflicted on you. You're just taking it to yourself. You're absorbing that. That's what you're doing. And that's why sometimes we have a hard time forgiving. Sometimes we have a hard time forgiving because we think, I can't absorb that much. I can't absorb that, in, that, that, that much pain. There's no way. If you were abused as a child, you know exactly what I'm talking about. One of the hardest things in the world for people who have been abused is to move fo- forward and find a way to forgive their abuser. Because what was done to them was so heinous, so wrong. And it was. Please don't think I'm saying at all that God's saying it's anything but wrong. So people think, okay, why can't God just absorb it? If we have to forgive and absorb it, why can't, why doesn't he? Well, here's the, the, the deal. As we're going to see as we go through Hebrews, when Jesus dies on the cross, that's exactly what he's doing. He is God absorbing sins against himself. What, what happens to Jesus at the cross is what humanity does to God. We don't want you. We hate you. Go away. We will not have you reign over us. Crucify him. Crucify him. That is God absorbing sin. Now I bring this up because when we see these animal sacrifices, God wanted his people to understand. He wanted his covenant people to understand that the only way your sins can be dealt with because your sins are against me is if something suffers for that. And these animals, these innocent animals, these pure animals, they had to be spotless, no blemishes. They're going to suffer for these things. Why? So that you can see sin can only be atoned at a great cost. So it all point to Jesus one day. Now, now here's, this is a really important thing, okay, when it comes to the high priest. God sets the qualifications for, for Aaron's priesthood. He's got to be a man. He's got to be one to make these sacrifices, including for himself, which we're going to see in a minute is different than Jesus. But also, listen, he has to be called by God. Verse 4 says, And no man takes his honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, it's important we recognize this. We've read these verses in both Exodus and Leviticus. It's important for us to recognize it's God who's dictating these things to Moses. It's God who's specifically calling Aaron to be in that place of high priest. God wants him to do this. God wants him to have compassion on sinful men. God wants him to mediate God wants sacrifices to be made so forgiveness can be given. God is the one who wants this. It's really important for you to see this. You see, the whole idea of mediation is not our idea, it's God's idea. Not because God has to have somebody mediate for him, we need somebody to mediate for us. God sets these qualifications because he's wanting to set a picture of what he would do in Christ. So the author draws this picture in these first four verses because he, as we've seen in the whole book, he wants to turn it back to Jesus. Verse five, he says, listen, so also Christ did not glorify himself uh, to become a high priest, but it was said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, he's quoting Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And you might remember from back in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, where the author used the same logic. He uses what we call a messianic psalm or a psalm about the Messiah, a psalm about God's chosen king. When those psalms were written, they were written 
uh, in hope of who this chosen king would be, not knowing who that king would be, but they were prophetic. They were looking forward to who that chosen king would be. And so Psalm 2 speaks that that chosen king is going to be God's very son. Now, they didn't understand at the time what that was going to look like, what that actually meant, but it was prophesied nonetheless. Now, the thing is, when it says here that God said this, we know from the book of Romans that this is a reference to God declaring Christ's sonship at His resurrection. Now, look at Romans chapter 1. Listen to this. Romans 1, verse 3 and 4 says, The good news is about His Son, God's Son. In His earthly life, He was born into King David's family, and He was shown to be the Son of God when He, when he was raised from the dead, notice, by the power of the Spirit, He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He was shown, didn't become the Son of God, but shown to be the Son of God. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is God the Son, always has been, always will be. God the Son added to His deity, humanity, came to this earth, walked this earth, lived a perfect, sinless life, died on a cross, absorbing our sin, and when He rose from the dead, He proved, He demonstrated, He showed, He validated that He indeed is God the Son. This is important because the authors want us to see, yeah, the same God who set the qualifications for Aaron priesthood is the same God who sent Jesus to be our eternal high priest. And the first reason we know that is because why? Jesus rose from the dead. He's alive. But he also says this, notice, then he quotes in verse 6, he quotes Psalm 110. He says, he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, Psalm 110 is one of those also, another one of those messianic psalms. Psalms about Jesus, psalms about uh, uh, the, the Messiah, God's chosen king that would come. Interesting that David wrote that psalm and David mentions this guy, Melchizedek, who's kind of, if, it wasn't, if he wasn't mentioned in Psalm 110, he would just be a little blurb in Genesis. And there's a lot of amazing stuff about Melchizedek that we're going to talk about when we get to chapter 7. Because even the author here in Hebrews wants to unpack it, we're going to see, but he says, I'm going to have to wait because I've got to deal with your hearts first. But suffice it to say, here's what Psalm 110 says. I'll just read the first four verses to you quickly. Here's what it says. You won't recognize these verses because they're quoted often in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the, uh, in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. The Lord will extend your powerful kingdom from Jerusalem. You will rule over your enemies. When you go to war, people will serve you willingly. You are arrayed in holy garments, and your strength will be renewed each day like the morning dew. The Lord has taken an oath. He will not break His vow. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now David writes the psalm knowing that God has said to him, from your line, from your earthly line, one of your descendants will be a king who reigns forever. But he says, look, this king is coming and he's going to reign forever and it's going to be glorious, but he's not going to just reign as king, he's also going to reign as priest. Now, here's what's interesting. The Jewish people who would have read this, the Hebrews who would have heard this read in their church services, would have thought, especially during the first four verses, they would have thought, wait a second. Okay, how can Jesus be high priest like Aaron because Aaron is a Levite. He's from the tribe of Levi. 
And the priests had to come from the tribe of Levi. So how could he come? Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. Well, this is what the author's trying to say. He's not, a, he's not a priest after the Levite way of being a priest. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, who we'll see in verse, chapter 7, was a, a, a priest of the Most High God. He's still a priest. And, and, and he's pointing back to Psalm 110, saying, look, I'm not just making this up. I'm not just pulling this out of the book of Genesis myself. David prophesied in Psalm 110. David prophesied that he indeed would be, the Messiah would be a priest as well. Someone who would go before God and represent his people. Now, he's prophesied to be the Messiah. So he's validated uh, about his deity through his resurrection. He's also prophesied to be the Messiah, this Jesus he sent. But also, this is really important, listen. The fact that he's the eternal high priest was demonstrated by his sinless humanity. And this is what's different and better about Jesus' high priesthood versus Aaron's high priesthood. Check this out. Verse 7, speaking of Jesus, it says, who in the days of his flesh, that is just the days he lived this, 33 years he lived on this earth, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, he was heard because of his godly fear. Now, this is kind of getting a snapshot of Jesus' prayer life. And the Gospels are really good about showing us how Jesus, as a man, he was 100% man, depended upon God through prayer. He practiced that dependency through prayer. And guess what? If Jesus did it, we should do it. Right? We talked about that last week. If he depended upon God through prayer, how much more do we need to, to practice that? But it's interesting that it says that he, with many prayers and supplications, it says with vehement cries and tears. What does the Bible say about the character of Christ as he walked this earth? Right? Again, Isaiah prophesied about what his character would be like. It says in Isaiah 53.3, He is despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him, it says. If you look at when Jesus was in his prayer life, if you look at the way he, he wrestled with God about things and he cried out to God about things and he trusted God through prayer about things, you'll see, often you'll see where Jesus weeps. When Lazarus dies in John chapter 11, what happens? Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. He wept. Why did he cry? Lots of different opinions about why he might have cried. I think one of the reasons he cried was just because he saw death as a bad thing. He cried because he saw the grief that these people were feeling. He cried because he really did love Lazarus. Maybe he cried because he felt bad for Lazarus. He was gonna, who would have been and stayed in heaven, but he had to come back. <laughs> Maybe he cried because of their unbelief. Either way, he wept. He was a man of sorrows. We see him, and I think this is probably what the author of Hebrews is pointing to. We see this most clearly illustrated in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's praying the night he's going to be portrayed. And it says in Luke's gospel that, and being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly, then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. That Jesus, knowing that he was about to be crucified, Jesus knowing that he would take the wrath of God upon himself on the cross, knowing he would experience a break 
in uh, eternal communion with the Father. He cried, and if you remember, when he cried out and he prayed, what did he pray? If there's any other way, let this cup pass for me. But not my will, but your will be done. That's what he did. See, sometimes I think we think of sinlessness or, or not sinning as staying away from, you know, the big things, you know. Don't sleep around, don't get drunk, don't steal, don't work for large corporations. <laughs> you know, th- this is what we, we kind of look at, you know. We have our own idea of what sinfulness is. We don't even think about sinlessness being not just not doing the bad stuff, but being surrendered to God for all the good stuff. That he did all that God would call him. He loved the Father perfectly. He loved people perfectly. Why did he submit to the Father? Because he loved the Father. He trusted the Father. That's sinless humanity. That's a perfect high priest. It says in verse 8, though he was a son, notice yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now it's hard for us to think about Jesus learning things because we think, okay, you might have even heard me said or someone else say, you know, one of the things that God can't do is God can't learn. He already knows everything. Wasn't well, Jesus God? Yes. But the Bible seems to teach in Philippians 2 that he laid aside the free exercise of his deity and lived only as a man, surrendered to God by the work of the Spirit to do whatever the Father wanted him to do. And so when it says he learned obedience, it doesn't mean that he was disobedient and he became obedient. It means he learned to obey each and every time. He learned perfect obedience. You know why? He always perfectly obeyed. It's the idea that he fulfilled obedience perfectly. He experienced what it was like to obey perfectly. You might say this, his perfect, his, uh, his sinless humanity was, was demonstrated in this daily kind of costly obedience. In fact, listen to this, in Luke's gospel, it says that as a child, it says, and the child, speaking of Jesus, grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. And it says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Again, this is not him kind of being out of favor and then going back into favor. This is the idea that he, already, he begins in favor, he begins perfect, and that perfection matures perfectly. This is what he does. What he does is exactly what the first Adam was supposed to do but failed to do. Jesus, the last Adam, does. He matures perfectly. He learns obedience to the things that he suffered. See, this is what the, the book of Philippians talks about. It says, being found in the appearance of man, this is Jesus, He humbles himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. See, we know, we we, we are assured and convinced that Jesus was sent to be our eternal high priest. Why? Because of the sinless humanity. Because he actually did live this way, perfectly sinless. He did what we want every person to be. This is why, guys, listen... Every religion and philosophy wants to take Jesus for himself. They twist who he is, but they want to take him for himself. The only exception probably would be Satanism. But every philosophy, I mean, everyone wants to say, okay, no, no, Jesus is with us. 
think, think about Islam. Islam says that he is the highest prophet, second only to Muhammad, and even testifies of his sinlessness. They don't believe he rose from the dead because they don't believe he really died, but still. They twist who he is, but they still have to honor him somehow. Even a lot of the neo-Orthodox Jews will say that he was a rabbi who had some really good things to say, and probably the other things that we don't like, he probably didn't really say anyway. That's how they deal with it. Why? Because you cannot deny, you cannot look at his life and think, this guy did good. There's some stuff that may be hard for us to swallow, difficult for us, to, definitely for us to follow, but the truth is, you can't deny that he was this sinless person. I want you to think about this. Think about when Jesus is being beaten, uh, he's being flogged right before he's crucified, when he's being scourged by the Roman soldiers. And scourging was a way to kind of get out a confession from these people. And of course, he was, as the lamb before, as, silent, uh, uh, as uh, sheer as a sense, so he didn't open his mouth. He just took it. But I want you to think about who was there with him. His mother, Mary. Mary was there seeing her son beaten to a pulp. All she would have had to say was, stop, stop. It's a fraud. It's wrong. Please don't hit him. I wasn't a virgin when I gave birth to him. It's all a fraud. Please leave him alone. Let me ask you, moms and dads, could you have watched your children, your child, even your adult child, be tortured for something you knew was a lie? Why couldn't she stop them? Why didn't she even try? Because she knew it was true. She might not have understood what was going on. She might still be pondering those things in her heart at that point, but she knew, I was a virgin. <laughs> An angel told me I'm going to conceive. I was overshadowed by the Spirit. All of a sudden, I find myself, there's this baby growing in my womb. Nine months later, I give birth. And he has been the perfect child. <laughs> and now I'm watching him being beaten. And I can't stop it because I can't deny who he is. Perfect, sinless obedience. And it says in verse 9, in having been perfected, having matured to the max, having obeyed to the end, he became, notice, the author, that is the one who causes something to be, the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest, and he quotes Psalm 110 again, according to the order of Melchizedek. I want you to think about this. Notice what it says. He became the author of eternal salvation. What kind of salvation? Eternal salvation. This is not some metaphor for deliverance from the Romans, man. This is fact that the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, I know the Jews are persecuting right now. I know your Jewish brothers and sisters are persecuting you, but hold tight because he who saved you has saved you eternally. It's not just a deliverance through bad times on your, in your life experience. This is about you being with him forever. It's eternal salvation. Notice it says eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now, is the author saying that obedience earns our salvation? I will say this really clearly. The author is saying, according to the way this is structured, in both the English and the Greek, that he is saying, yes, obedience is required for salvation. 
Anyone want to stone me as a heretic yet? I want you to listen to this. Here's what the Scripture says. Acts 6, chapter 7, says, And the word of God spread, and a number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Notice, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Listen to this. Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 1.8, in flaming fire, he's talking about uh, they're also being persecuted when he writes to them. So he's saying, look, the ones who are persecuting you, here's what's going to happen to them if they don't get saved. He says, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, on those, notice, who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the obedience that's required of us. Because obedience is just that. Obedience is a command received. A command that you follow. This is the command that is required for any of us to experience the eternal salvation of an eternal high priest. We have to obey the gospel. What's the gospel? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. What does God command of you? Faith. God says to you emphatically, He doesn't ask for your permission. He doesn't try to just convince you. He says to you plainly as He reveals Himself in Christ, trust me. He commands our trust. doesn't require anything else. He just says, trust me. Trust that what I've done in Christ is enough. Trust that I have not just died on a cross, but I've risen from the dead. Trust you're going to get there in the end. Trust I am working in you and I won't stop. Trust. Obey the gospel. See, the problem is we tend to think that this whole thing about salvation is, well, you know, if you want to, how would you like to try Jesus? Add Jesus to your life. Yeah. He's a good option. Things go better with Jesus. No, Jesus says to us, He commands us, trust me. Trust me. Don't you know, I'm the only way. I am the only high priest. There's no way you can approach the Father except through me. Trust me, he says. This is what he calls us to. So, God sets the qualifications for Aaron's priesthood because he knew that those qualifications would point to Jesus whom God sent to be our eternal high priest. So the author wants to talk more about Melchizedek, but he says why he can't, verse 11. He says, Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. The word dull there means sluggish or lazy. Interesting. Here's here's the point that really he's going to make. He he wants us to know, God wants us to mature under Christ's priesthood. And you need to understand this, Christian. Listen, you, I'm talking to you guys who are already believers here. I mean, if you guys, those of you here are still kind of checking this Jesus stuff out, uh, this isn't quite yet applied to you yet, though you should listen up because this would apply to you if you come to faith in Christ and we're praying you come to faith in Christ. But, but here's the re- reality. It's not a, th- a thing where you can, okay, I say a prayer or okay, I believe in Jesus. Now the rest is up to me. I've got to make myself grow. No, you only grow, you only mature by remaining faithful to Jesus, by trusting Jesus. It's the only way you can mature. 
We have to believe He's the one who's our representative. That when God, when He stands before God, God says, that's enough. He's a perfect and eternal high priest. And we only mature as we access God through our high priest. So what's the problem? The problem is, listen, we hinder the access. We ourselves are hindered by that free, faith-given access by our own laziness. We are spiritually lazy. Now, I want you to think about the relationships in your life that are most important. The ones that are most important to you, you can tell which ones are most important to you because of what kind of investment you make in those relationships. Now, this is going to make some people feel guilty, I know, because you're going to go, oh no, I've been neglecting that relationship and I shouldn't. My point is not to make you feel guilty. I'm just trying to make an illustration. We invest time in the relationships that are most important to us. That's what we do. And so what happens, though, is, and especially I, I see this a lot in marriage, what happens is you get married and you invest a lot, initially you invest a lot, at least the guys, we really invest a lot so we can get to the point of marriage, you know, or we get to the point of being with our wives. And then kind of you've got her, you've, the mighty hunter has won and captured a wife, and then you don't actually try so hard anymore. You stop investing. And what happens when you stop investing in your marriages? There's a drift, isn't there? You know if you're in any kind of serious relationship, whether it's married relationship or with your parents or with your children, whatever it is, you know that the, to maintain those relationships, there needs to be a bit of investment. And when you're lazy about those relationships, they suffer. It doesn't mean you automatically become unmarried or you stop being a parent or stop being a child. It just simply means the relationship itself suffers. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to say, look, I really want to get more into this Melchizedek stuff with you, but i got to pause because I'm really concerned about the fact of how lazy you guys have become. And he does use the word become, doesn't he? In verse 11, since you have become sluggish of hearing, lazy in hearing. In other words, you used to be diligent, now you've become sluggish. How many of you here in this room today who have been Christians for many years remember when you became a Christian? And the zeal that you maybe initially had, some of you guys... Who, especially like me, who didn't grow up in a Christian home, you might have had a more dramatic conversion experience. And when you first knew you were loved by God, and you're like, yes, I want to know this God, has that cooled? Has it cooled because of laziness? Now, the emotions will come and go. That's a fact, but are you still investing? He goes on to say this, listen. He says, for by this time, verse 12, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. You've got to go back to the basics. He says, you have come to need milk and not solid food. Now, lest we see this as not that big of a deal, I want you to picture in your mind, after church today, I sit down really tired. Sarah comes up, puts me in her lap, and sticks a bottle in my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to think, that is weird, man. What is wrong with that guy? Now, if it's liquefied bacon, I'm going to take it. I don't care. I love bacon. So. But I mean, seriously, I'm not going to be bottle-fed. I'm not a baby. I'm a man. You would expect me not to be spoon-fed or bottle-fed. You expect me to be able to feed myself. You would even expect me, a guy my age, to be able to cook my own meals and maybe even cook for somebody else. That's the point he's trying to make. He's saying, we got to spoon feed you, man. we got to go back to the very basic stuff. And you've been Christians for how long? Come on. 
This is not, listen, this is not the author of Hebrews being harsh. He's saying, listen, you need to wake up. God wants to mature you, and he wants to mature you through realizing how sufficient your great high priest is. But here's how you learn to do this. Check this out, verse 13, okay? It's not just hindered because we're lazy. It's hindered because, listen, we don't actually practice. A lot of you guys, or some of you guys here, aren't lazy intellectually. Some of you guys like to read, you like to study, you want to know the stuff. This is a trap in a church like ours. A trap like our, a church like ours, we really value the Word, and we encourage you guys to read your Bibles, and we encourage you guys to know what Scripture says. You can get into a trap where you think, okay, I know a lot. And if I know a lot, I must be mature. Look what he says, verse 13. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But notice, solid food belongs to him who is of full age or mature. That is, here's who's of full age. Listen, here's the mature person. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. What do we read in the book of James? It's not the hearers that are justified, it's the doers of the word. See guys, God calls us to do what he says. God doesn't want us just to say, okay, let me be really simple and clear about this. The author of Hebrews is not saying, the Holy Spirit is not saying, just understand this priesthood thing, and if you have a good theology about priesthood, everything's fine. If you understand who Jesus is, and if you understand what the priesthood is about, as long as you have that here, you're fine. He's not saying that. He's saying, listen, you can have it here, but if you're not living that way, what good does it do you? You're not maturing. What good is it? We we mentioned this last week. What good is it, guys, if we recognize we have complete and unfettered access to the presence of Almighty God if we never go there? What's the point? What what good is it if we know that God himself dwells in us by his Holy Spirit so that we can actually love the unlovable if we never practice love? What good is it? You are not going to mature if you think it's just going to be about understanding theology better. Now, you do need to understand theology better, but that's not how you're going to grow. One of the things that I've observed over the years... um, as a believer and also as a pastor is, some of the people that I've found to be most mature don't really know that much of the Bible. They, they, but what they know, they know well. And they know it well because they do it well. They do what they know. I've met people whose theology is a bit bad. It's a little wacky, to be honest. Uh, and I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm just being honest. I'm just saying, as someone who studies Scripture for a living and tries to make sure that I'm being as accurate as I can be, I've met people and I'm thinking, they have some weird understandings about what this book says. But what they do have that's right, they do. They walk in what's right, and God does good things through them. Because maturity comes through practice. Okay, you think, okay, John, that sounds good. It's a bit intriguing, but is that really, what, is that really true? Listen to what Jesus says. I'll close with this. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew 
and beat, him, beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his hand on sand, and the rain uh, descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Two guys building houses. Two guys hearing what Jesus says. And the, word is, the idea is this hearing and understanding. Understanding what Jesus says. Two guys, I understand what Jesus says. What's the difference? One guy does what Jesus says. One guy does not. The guy that does what Jesus say, that says, stability, maturity. The guy doesn't, destruction. That's what he's saying. Listen, again, the author of Hebrews is not saying to those he's writing, I don't believe the Holy Spirit is saying to you guys here, I want you to be afraid, I want you to be scared that you're not going to make it to heaven. It's just the opposite. He wants you to be assured that you have an eternal high priest, therefore you have eternal life. But he wants us to actually walk in that eternal life. We're not just waiting to die. We're called to seek God, pursue God, know God now. Because why? We can. We can go to Him as our Father. Why? Because God the Son has made us sons and daughters. Aaron was a, he was a decent high priest. Made some big mistakes, but he was the one that God chose, and he did some good. Jesus is better than Aaron. He didn't just do some good. He did good perfectly. And because he did good perfectly, we have a perfect position before our Father God in heaven. Amen?